Welcome to this edition of the Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm Don Mills. And I'm David Campbell. Today, we continue our series of well-known entrepreneurs uh, in the region with a really interesting and, to be frank, quite candid conversation with John Risley, who is not that, not shy to share his opinions. And I think uh, our listeners will really get a kick out of some of the things that he talks about. David? Absolutely. In my opinion, there's two kinds of entrepreneurs. There's the entrepreneurs that have a really strong subject matter expertise. They're good at something and they start a business around that. And then there's entrepreneurs that tend to be good at the business of entrepreneurship, no matter what the underlying product or services. And of course, John Risley has been involved in a, a wide variety of businesses, everything from uh, from a fish fish sector to technology to uh, to telecommunications. So he is firmly in the camp of uh, of, uh, of of the the pure entrepreneur. And as you said, he's uh, he's not a stranger to some controversial opinions, and we talked a little bit about that uh, with him today. Yeah, and, and I think people obviously know John from Clearwater, uh, a company that he built with uh, his uh, partner, um, Colin McDonald. Uh, but he's done a lot of other things, very successful. I mean, this is a very successful entrepreneur. He built, uh, founded and built uh, Ocean uh, Nutrition, a farmer's uh, nutraceutical company that was sold to uh, for a lot of money uh, and continues to operate, by the way, out of Nova Scotia, which is important. Uh, he's involved with uh, Columbus Communications, uh, another company that uh, ended up being sold to a very large company, Cable and Wireless, uh, in 2014. And he continues to be actively involved in investing in companies through his own personal venture fund, I guess, that he has but also involvement in some big activities, including the Creative Destruction Labs at, uh, at uh, Dalhousie. And he's also chair of the, of the Canada's Ocean Supercluster. So, you know, he's a busy guy, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, you half expect some of these folks after working hard for 40 years and cashing out of their business, and I'm also looking at you, Don, uh, to sort of, uh, you know, go off into the sunset and play shuffleboard and golf all day. And it's really a good thing to see these business leaders staying active, investing in companies, using their vast experience to help grow a new generation of entrepreneurs. And I think that's really great. There's lots of time for golf and, and shuffleboard. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, it, you know, using your time wisely, I think it makes, makes a lot of sense. And the Ocean Supercluster thing, I think, is very, very interesting. I think the listeners will be interested to what he has to say in that area. Remember, Jerry Pond a few weeks ago uh, said that was the new frontier uh, in his mind for entrepreneurial activity and startups in Atlantic Canada. So very excited about what's going on with the Supercluster and glad to have uh, John Risley uh, at the head of that as chair. Yeah, not only that, but we're starting to see some connections in our podcast, aren't we? I mean, you know, we had... Uh... Melanie Nado, the CEO of Cove, uh, which is a, an incubator, ocean incubator on the Halifax Harbor that uh, obviously works with the supercluster. Um, you know, uh, we talked about uh, public policy issues with John in this uh, our conversation. He's, he, you know, he's got some very, uh, you know, uh, strong views on the kind of policy changes that are needed. And frankly, I agree with the ones that he talked about today. Uh, you know, and his, his involvement on the policy side goes back uh, really decades. He, he, you know, was a long time, uh, had a long time association with the Atlantic um, Institute for Market Studies, which as which we featured as uh, part of our discussion with uh, with the CEO of Fraser, who they merged with, uh, Niles uh, Free uh, Veldhaus. Uh, you know, so... <laughs> You know, we're starting to get some synergies in our podcast, aren't we? They're just kind of, there's some overlap, but we're seeing the connections. We're understanding kind of what's happening behind the scenes to some extent about what's going on in our region. All the more reason if you haven't signed up and uh, with Spotify uh, or with Apple Podcasts, you should do that right away and you'll never miss another another one of our podcasts. I would uh, just pick up on, uh, on, on what you've said here because I do think that um, there is a lot of connective tissue. If you go back to the discussion with uh, Jim Irving through to this discussion with, with Risley, the, there's a lot of common themes among these leading entrepreneurs, and they're not backward looking. These folks are all looking to the future, 
And I think what Risley said today about the, his optimism around entrepreneurship, I think he's right on the money. We are seeing a new generation of entrepreneurs, but he also talked about the, the sort of comfort level and kind of apathy among the general population. And I think that's true too, right? So you got these two things going on. You've got this new stream of exciting entrepreneurs emerging, but you have a, a generally older population that's kind of comfortable heading to retirement or retired. Uh, and not particularly interested in change. So we've got those two things we've got to work on. And that, uh, of course, animates a lot of our discussions here on the podcast. Yeah. And let me just carry on a little bit from that, because, uh, you know, one of the things that uh, I have said quite often on this podcast is that, you know, the major barriers that we have in, in Atlanta, Canada tend to be attitudinal. It's not, it's not skill. It's not resources. It's all in the head. And, uh, you know, we're fighting against that all the time. You know, the, the, it, this region has a propensity to fight change. I don't know why. I think it's really because we, we, we you know, our population really hasn't changed much for decades. Now, that, that actually is changing because with the influx of immigrants, um, they're forcing us to look at things differently. They bring creative ideas and innovation and entrepreneurism into the region. And that, that I... I I personally have a lot of, uh, I guess, uh, confidence that uh, by stimulating our population with people coming in with new ideas from elsewhere, maybe we can break through those attitudes quicker than we otherwise could. And uh, at least that's my hope. Yeah, and it's a source of my optimism, one of the sources of my optimism as well, Don. Yeah. So with that introduction, let's, uh, let's hear what John Risley has to say. John, welcome to our podcast. Great to be here. Thank you, Don. Now, most people, I think, have heard the story of how Clearwater got started uh, with you and uh, Colin selling lobsters off the back of a pickup truck on the Beverett Highway. But I wondered if you could provide our listeners with a brief overview of the development of Clearwater from its founding in 1976 to the point where it was recently sold, perhaps uh, by maybe focusing on some of the key milestones along the way. Uh, sure. Um uh, the story probably tells uh, better than it, than it, than the experience because uh, <laughs> the story misses out on on all the times when uh, uh, when we ran into brick walls and there were many of those. So we started off as a as a retail company and then started uh, selling um, to the domestic market. Um, the, quickly determined that the market was a price uh, best price market. Very difficult to make money uh, in a market where price means uh, everything. So looked around for opportunities uh, where uh, uh, where price wasn't necessarily the key uh, decision-making uh, component and uh, went to Europe. In those days, um, uh, when you wanted to sort of do your research, you did it in a phone book with the, with the yellow pages. And uh, so we spent time over there trying to figure out who was in the business and who might be our customers. Uh, and uh, customers in Europe um, wanted service, wanted uh, consistent service year round, then they wanted consistent quality. And uh, we listened, had no idea how we were going to meet um, that criteria, but um, uh, convinced them and ourselves that we could and went away and tried to sort of figure out what we had to do in the industry to uh, uh, to be able to sell in that marketplace where where consistency of price and consistency of quality uh, and consistency of delivery were were sort of um, the criteria by which people would engage with us and um, and we tried hard we didn't get there uh, for a long time but we tried hard and I think our customers were patient and sympathetic and and impressed by uh, the extent to which we we were evidencing that we were sort of uh, trying to resolve the industry problems. And uh, uh, in the days before computerization, airlines would lose shipments and would have, I mean, the way you located them was to go physically around a warehouse and see if you could see them. Were they on the plane? Were they not on the plane? Um, we take a lot of things for granted today that, that didn't exist back in, in, in those days. Um, and uh, so had to sort of solve all those kinds of problems um, um, and made progress and, and built up a, a reasonable business. In the mid-1980s, uh, 
uh, lived through the high inflation of the early 80s. Um, and that wasn't a fun time because um, for those of us who were in business back in those days and interest rates were over 20%, that was a, that was a tough time. Um, the industry brought in new regulations um, uh, and it permitted people to consolidate uh, that and, and as an, in an attempt from the regulator's perspective to better manage the resource uh, so that rather than open up a particular resource and, and all comers and uh, you get what you can take as quickly as you can take it kind of thing. Uh, which was a stupid way to manage the resource, but which was the way we managed uh, most of our seafood re resources uh, back in those days. And, and then we went to an enterprise allocation system whereby if you had been historically catching 10% of whatever the regulated quota was, you were allocated 10% and then you could, you could define your fishing capacity and your processing capacity around that 10% rather than rush out with all with with a useless amount of excess capacity solely designed to try to maximize your share, so that led to huge efficiencies. Uh, we became a consolidator, uh, brought capital into the business, expanded uh, throughout uh, uh, the extent of the of Canadian resources. Um, went to uh, the UK and the west coast of Canada and the US and Alaska built a bit of a business there, got ourselves into trouble um, because we'd grown too quickly and taken on too much debt. Uh, and so in the early 90s, sold off a lot of um, those excess assets, uh, kept the Canadian business, rebuilt the company around that Canadian business, took the company public in, in 2002. Uh, uh, and thinking back, I'm not sure that was a, a good decision. There was a a frenzy in those days around something called income trusts, which were a public vehicle that paid out on a tax efficient basis, um, very high levels of dividends to, uh, to shareholders. Um, and, uh, and then uh, we stayed public and, and realized that Colin and, and I uh, didn't have family that was interested in the business. We were concerned about, about, uh, finding a home for the company and the assembly of licenses uh, that we had put together and fishing effort. We wanted a responsible home for that. We did not want a financial house to own these assets um, whose focus was going to be on, on maximizing short-term profitability. Uh, and so asked the First Nations communities here in Atlanta, Canada, if they were interested in uh, participating in some sort of a consortium uh, because we saw First Nations as being uh, sort of an institutional ownership, if you like, that was going to last forever, not 10 years, 20 years, um, but forever. Uh, they were indeed very interested and were delighted uh, that in, in the end, um, uh, we were, were able to work out a, a successful deal with them and they acquired the business a, a year or so ago. So that sale went through in January of last year. I, I think it's your was your 45th anniversary. Is that correct? Of, 46. Of running the yeah, business? 40, 46. 46 yeah, yeah, yeah. 47. 47. Yeah. 47. So that must have been a bittersweet moment for you. Can you tell us a little bit about why you decided to sell when you did? Yeah, as I say, we wanted, we didn't have, uh, uh, Colin and I had broken through the 70, 70 year old age uh, uh, post and uh, uh, you begin to sort of reflect on, okay, what do I, what, you know, what, what do I want to own and what do I not want to own kind of thing. Uh, neither one of us had family in the business and uh, it made sense to pass ownership on to uh, to, as I say, owners that we thought would, would be good stewards of what we had put together over the long term. It certainly is a game changer to sell to the uh, First Nations communities like that. Um, and you had told us basically you went out and, and engaged them, which is very interesting. I hadn't heard that before. Uh, did you entertain any other buyers or were you zoomed in on, on, uh, on, on working with them? Yeah, we, we, uh, we had to entertain other buyers, uh, David, because uh, we had other, we, the family controlled about 60% of the company, but we had other shareholders uh, who, not a, who, who had 
you can imagine an objective that was probably mostly financially based. And, and so uh, our preference was to do the First Nations deal, but it had to be in a, within the same price bracket as, as other buyers would be prepared to pay. And they understood that, and we worked closely with them to, to get them there. And uh, uh, they saw it as a very unique opportunity and, uh, uh, and to their credit, uh, stepped to the table. How do you think the sale will impact uh, those Mi'kmaq communities going forward? Well, the great news is that the company has done, it's actually had probably its almost its best, well, it will have had its best year ever in the, in the year since the sale. So it's a great way for them to have sort of started off this relationship with the company sort of performing above both their expectations and our expectations. So you can imagine they're thrilled with the result. And, uh, and, and this will be, and it's just not a financial transaction for them. Uh, First Nations see themselves as sort of being attached at the hip to the country's natural resources. Uh, and, and this would be obviously one of the most important, um, uh, the ocean in the ocean community, if you like, was, uh, was sort of indelibly tied to the lives of, of First Nations over, over, over the last hundreds or thousands of years. And uh, uh, so jobs, and not just entry-level jobs, um, but jobs that extend right up through to uh, the senior positions on, on vessels, uh, which carry with them, obviously, great, um, great salary levels, uh, and then positions throughout the, uh, the, uh, the company. Why can't First Nations people be accountants, engineers, lawyers, um, sales and marketing folks, um, not just here, but if we've got offices in China, offices in the United States, offices in Europe, why can't they experience, if you like, the opportunity to work in those offices um, as they grow their careers inside the business? So a tremendous uh, opportunity for them to sort of think through uh, what what can I do, if you like, now, now that we all have a very material ownership stake in this company, uh, what are the career opportunities that this company is going to offer uh, uh, over the course of the uh, next 20 or 25 years? And uh, I know that if I go off and train as whatever, that the prospect of me getting a job in this company is probably pretty good. Uh, John, you have been involved in a number of other business ventures along the way, including um, Ocean Nutrition, a nutraceutical company you founded, I think, in 1997 and later sold to Royal DSM, which is a company based in the Netherlands in 2012, I believe. You're also involved in the founding of Columbus Communications, a Caribbean-based cable and internet company that was later sold uh, to Cable and Wireless uh, uh, in 2014. You can meet. You continue to be an active investor through your own holding company, and you're uh, you were one of the I think founding uh, founders behind Dalhousie University's Creative Destruction Labs for startups. Can you tell us what you know? What are your current business interests? You have a wide variety of them, but where are you concentrating your efforts right now? Yeah, uh, so uh, you could imagine that the relationship between, let's say, seafood and, and cable TV and, and high-speed <laughs> internet is, is not an obvious one. Uh, and so we were always sort of industry agnostic. Uh, uh, we, like, we like businesses where uh, technology can play a really important differentiating role. Um, uh, and we like opportunities that are high growth. The, the seafood industry taught us how difficult it was to build a business in an industry that, that wasn't growing 20 or 25% a year. Uh, Columbus was in an industry that was going 20, 25% a year. You can make a lot of mistakes and still grow your company. Uh, much more difficult to do in a, in an industry that, that, that is where you don't control other than through acquisition, the opportunity to grow because you're dependent on the natural resource cycle, if you like, for the species that, that, uh, uh, your business is built upon. Uh, and we're, uh, I think, uh, people who are, uh, enormously curious and, uh, uh, love learning. And so uh, I think we've refined, if you like, our, 
uh, our investing uh, focus around what I'll call um, socially driven purposes. And uh, that'll sound, you know, sort of very convenient and everybody's talking now about ESG. Uh, I don't like that. I don't like it because everybody now is saying that they're ESG and a lot of that is whitewashing and frankly crap. Um, We uh, look for companies that really can make a difference in uh, everything from uh, sustainability, uh, low cost proteins, for instance, that uh, that don't consume uh, a lot of energy or water uh, through to uh, ele- electrification, through to plastics recycling, uh, um, space. We, we've made a big investment in, in space with Canada's iconic space company, MDA. Um, but the real value and purpose is that if you've got a compelling social purpose, and it could be decarbonization, it could be uh, sustainability, it could be the circular economy, then, uh, uh, and that company is, is developing or has got a technology that can really make a difference, then you can attract really smart young people. You can't attract and keep uh, good people today to businesses that don't have a compelling uh, uh, purpose that really can uh, make a difference, if you like, to uh, uh, lifestyle and, and, and environmental uh, goals and socially important goals. Now, for some time, uh, John, you've been a columnist for the Atlantic Business Magazine, authoring the Devil's Advocate uh, column, which has, I guess, provided you with a platform to advocate for various changes in public policy and, and priorities for Atlantic Canada. As you're well aware, very few people like you are prepared to take the risk to offer your personal opinions on sometimes controversial public policy issues. Tell us why you decided to, you know, to use your voice to advocate for change. Yeah, um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure anybody reads my column, but but I think it's really important that uh, business people uh, speak out. Um, if uh, the if you think about sort of how important public policy is, uh, you can look around the world and understand things like the economic rise, if you like, and the standard of living in jurisdictions like Singapore, and how important public policy was to the growth of those jurisdictions. And I, I don't know of any more powerful tool in growing our standard of living. And standard of living is not just materially based, it's healthcare based, it's it's happiness based, it's, it's a whole bunch of things. And uh, all those things feed frankly from, from good public policy. And the problem is that if we leave it to the politicians, uh, and I'm not being critical of politicians, our electoral cycle, uh, tells those folks that, that, look, we're really interested in what they're doing for us today, um, but we're not particularly interested in what they're going to do for us tomorrow because we can't measure that today. We can only measure that tomorrow, and that tomorrow is beyond the electoral cycle. So who is going to speak to the future? Who is going to speak to the cost of doing things today for the benefit of tomorrow uh, in the absence of any incentive for, the poli- for, for our politicians to do that? And it has, to be, it has to be institutions. It has to be business people. It has to be people who are really sort of, have, if you like, have, have got an interest in, look, uh, our company is going to be around 10, 15, hopefully 25 and 30 years from now. And uh, how can we use public policy to ensure the economic environment and the technical environment and the educational environment in which we operate is going to be continue to be competitive, right? Uh, and so we have to have that public debate. We have to draw people into it. We have to make people aware of what the issues are. It's not good or enough to sort of say, hey, look, I don't need to know anything about that. I'm just going to go about my life as it is. No. That's not that's not good enough. That you have to be aware of these issues. You have to understand um, uh, how important it is to have an effective education system. How important it is to have an effective healthcare system. Not one that's just free. One that produces good value. Uh, and ours is free, but it doesn't produce good value. It's enormously expensive for the value it produces, and it's great once you get entry into that healthcare system. But try to get entry. 
uh, try to get to see a specialist in this country, right? It's just, I'm sorry, it's not performing. It's great that it's free, but it's not a performing system. And it's great to be proud of it because it's free and everybody can get access. But what's the good of free if you can't get access? So you know, public policy is the kinds of is is an opportunity for people to debate the questions and the solutions and make people aware. Just look, try to give people information so that they can become part of the dialogue around what options do we have. Yeah, Don and I have been thinking a lot about healthcare too, particularly in the context of the pandemic, because it really did shine a light on just how how tight things are in terms of our, our, our capacity to handle uh, any kind of a, a challenge like a pandemic. But beyond healthcare, what are some other public policy issues that you think require uh, the most attention at this moment in time? Yeah, just if I can go back to healthcare, we, we should, frankly, as a country, should be ashamed of ourselves. We learn nothing from SARS. Uh, the fact that we and other jurisdictions, and this isn't just blame Canada again, uh, were completely unprepared for a pandemic when when it was not a question as to when we were going to have a global, or, sorry, if we were going to have a global pandemic, it was rather a matter of, of uh, when. Uh, and the scientific community uh, was saying it's going to happen, it's just a matter of when. And SARS was not a one-off, it was going to be repeated in some form. So we should not have been shocked by the arrival of, of COVID and how fast it transmitted around the world. But the fact that, that rich countries had no uh, personal protective equipment in inventory, right? And we were caught with our pants down. Frankly, we should be ashamed of ourselves. And, and, if, and if we should be proud of one thing, it's the extent to which the private sector rode to the rescue and we developed vaccines in a record amount of time that have been hugely important contributors to being able to manage through this. So my point is we need to learn from, from this and, uh, uh, and, and make sure we're better prepared next time because there will be a next time for, for sure. So what's the other, besides healthcare, uh, what's the other major uh, failure, if you, if you like, in our system? Uh, and it's education and, and not so much education at the, at the post-secondary level, uh, although we do need to make sure we have open debate there and that, you know, one, one side of the political spectrum doesn't own uh, access to information and public discourse, uh, but everybody gets access, if you like, to, uh, to the debate, uh, wherever you come from in the political spectrum. But I think our P to 12 system is, is failing and failing badly in this country. The, uh, uh, the folks that we graduate, we should be ashamed of their performance uh, relative to the performance of other children their age in other jurisdictions around the world. And if you look at the amount of money that we spend on public education in this country as a percentage of GDP, that's not the problem. We spend plenty of money, but we leave management of the system to unions. And I don't have any problem with the idea that the teachers union uh, are entitled to have a union and entitled to negotiate on behalf. I have a huge problem when the teachers union feels that they've got the right to manage the system uh, and, uh, uh, and, and the kinds of ridiculous issues that take place in the education system, which result in us having a, a very poor uh, uh, return for, for money invested, if you like. And it's not about the money. It's about, about the fact that the world is getting hugely more competitive. If uh, we talked earlier about, about my experience in the seafood business and when we started, there were no such things as cell phones. There were no such, there were no computers. There were no fax machines, right? And you think about how far we've, we've come just in the past 10 or 15 years. And, and people can't imagine this, but I promise you we are going to change more quickly over the course of the next 10 years than we have over the last 20. Now that's a prediction that's not fact-based. It's just my sense of how many, how much investment, how much money is pouring into new technologies. Uh, and, and I worry about the economic divide. One of the, one of the world's biggest problems right now is income inequality and it's getting worse. It's not getting better. And the only, you know, we can try to fix that a bit with 
policies around taxation and 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 social causes and and other things but that's only that's only patching up the problem it's not fixing the fundamental the fundamental cause of that inequality is resonant in the difference in education and incentives right and we've got to have an education system that's on par with the world's best and we don't so how do we do that, John? You know, in the U.S., they're using charter schools. There's a growing movement toward pay for performance. Uh, you talked about the strengths of the unions here. Like, what is there a way that here in Canada, given our commitment to public education, to 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 make that system stronger while providing access, you know, full and open access to everybody? David, David, make me a uh, make me a dictator for two years, and I promise you, I would uh, would carry out uh, a lot of change in a hurry. So, what are some ideas? Uh, here are some ideas. First of all, I'm not I'm not here to to threaten uh, teachers or the teachers union. I'm here to engage with them, and I would love to. So, we've got tens of thousands of teachers in this country. I promise you, there are teachers who are super good. And there are teachers who are not good. Right? So what can we do? What we should be doing is learning from the teachers that are super good, right? And taking those lessons and trying to improve the quality of those folks who are at the bottom end of the scale. And we should have some kind of a quality measurement so that those people who are not doing their job are asked to leave the profession and let them go on and do something else. Why is it fair for one student, given the luck of the draw, to end up in front of a super fantastic teacher who loves what they're doing and is really good at it. And the rest of the system can't learn from that teacher. No, 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 the union wants everybody equal. We can't have good and bad, everybody's the same. That's bullshit. Everybody is not the same, right? So let's learn from the good ones, let's try to improve the poor ones, and let's have some kind of quality standard where frankly, if you don't measure up, Go find something else to do. It's not fair. We don't, if you think about every other private sector job, there's some kind of measurement system which sort of says, hey, we reward good people and we can't fix the bad people. We ask them to leave. So would you pay the really good teachers a lot more money or? or, or I would. I think we have to be careful about incentives because, of course, we have to, you know, how can we figure out what the quality of output is and how do we reward people accordingly? You know, should we have a reward system in place? Absolutely, we should. I think teachers that are, are, are good, are really good teachers and are enthusiastic about their profession aren't necessarily doing it for the money. They're doing it because they they enjoy doing it. They're good at it. They they feel that this is a really important uh, lifestyle choice for them. Um, but having said that, there are other ways we can give them recognition. Should we celebrate them in some fashion? Absolutely, we should. We're not allowed to right now. So I wanted to pick up on something Don said earlier about your public commentary on these public policy issues. Uh, you called for a moratorium on ocean-based salmon farming. Uh, and it did generate quite a bit of negative re reaction from the aquaculture industry. I guess the question is, how do you deal with that criticism or the risk of criticism when you make those opinions public? As Don mentioned, most business leaders in the region are not quite as public uh, with their opinions on these, these bigger and controversial issues. So how do you handle that? Yeah, so when we first started in the business and we grew quickly, um, uh, a lot of the public comment, and obviously not all of it, but some of it was we really weren't in the lobster business. We were in the drug business, and and you know the lobster business was just a front for the fact that we were running drugs, um, and um, so that didn't bother me, um, and uh, developed a thick skin, and 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 frankly, look, when I criticize the aquaculture industry and say there are bad practices. Uh, which costs the, both the industry and the environment money. Uh, I'm hoping that they, that that debate will give uh, visibility to the issues and they will take their hand out of this, uh, their head out of the sand and say, you know, look, is sea lice a problem in Newfoundland? <laughs> You're damn right it is. Just look at, at, at what we've, at what the industry is faced with mortalities and, uh, uh, and look at where there are best practices in the world around the management of aquaculture activity and Canada can learn from those and, and should we be sort of paying attention to what are those best practices and, 
and uh, and bring them to uh, bring them here to to Atlantic Canada. I mean, there is absolutely no question but that the wild salmon population in rivers adjacent aquaculture activity, uh, the data is very compelling. Uh, those those the, the, the wild populations are in danger in those areas and they're in danger from escapes and, and inbreeding, if you like, with with a population that, that is being artificially sort of um, engineered and filled with antibiotics and so on, obviously, of which the wild population is, has got no exposure to, and, and that weakens the breed. Now, I'm not saying shut down aquaculture. I'm saying, look, aquaculture is becoming a really important part of the ocean economy, but let's do it in a sustainable, responsible way. Uh, and people who push back on that are, are very being very short-termism, because if they don't they don't wake up to that reality. It's going to be very difficult for them to get uh, access to, to, to more sites and, and get the public behind them. Uh, one of the issues that you have been strongly you have strongly argued for uh, over the years is reducing, if not entirely eliminating, interprovincial barriers within Atlantic Canada. Can you give a few examples of where eliminating eliminating these barriers would benefit the region as a whole? Yeah, we all have uh, struggled. Uh, when I say we all, the whole Canadian economy has struggled with the difference in regulations of, around how we manage, you know, the dairy industry or how we manage labeling or how we, uh, I mean, we, we came out of an age where if you wanted to sell beer in a particular province, you had to have a brewery in that province, right? And uh, it's just nonsense. Here, here, here we are, uh, as a, as a modern, efficient country and saying we want to compete on the world stage, uh, but we want to do that nationally, but we don't really want to do it uh, provincially. And that's, of course, uh, very hypocritical. And uh, now the good thing is, have we, have we made strides uh, towards freer trade interprovincially? Yes, we have. But are we there? No. And we should just tear up the rule book. Look, I was fairly intimately involved in in uh, working with the federal government uh, over over COVID management issues, and how I was doing that doesn't really uh, matter. But one of the things that I absolutely was confounded, perplexed, and disappointed by was the fact that we really have ten different healthcare systems in this country, right? Uh, because we've got 10 provinces plus the two territories. The rules are different in each one. Nobody attempts to learn from the other. It was a really sad uh, testimony to reflect on, on the extent to which the inefficiency of, of how we manage something as important as, as healthcare differently in one province from another. And there's very little communication between those provinces no sharing of learnings uh, uh, or on mistakes or what works well. And, uh, and, and people in one province saying, okay, do this, and people in another province saying, do that. I mean, it was frankly pathetic uh, to bear witness to all of that. And that kind of sort of interprovincial rivalry, if you know, it's not rivalry, but, but we know best, or this is the way we do things in in Ontario, or this is the way we do things in, in British Columbia, if you like, it's just crazy. I mean, if the, the federal government should frankly weigh in and just strip out uh, uh, some of this and, and uh, the country would be better off. Now, would there be some dislocation in the short term? Yeah, but over the long term, uh, a lot of this is just nonsense, which costs us all a crazy amount of money. I mean, one of the things that, that I advocated to the uh, for Atlantic premiers, for instance, is, well, why don't you just have one entity buy all the liquor for all the liquor licensing? I mean, isn't that just sort of, you know, a pretty easy thing to do, right? And, uh, and you know, if you consolidate that, don't you all save money as a consequence? I mean, do we really have to, you know, buy all our liquor as the province of Nova Scotia and then you know, New Brunswick has to go buy all its own liquor. I mean, it's just crazy. And uh, we pay for it as a consequence. Right? Uh, and, and just it, uh, enough. It drives, that kind of thing drives me nuts. Um, 
You were the chair of the board of directors uh, with the Atlantic Institute of Market Studies and led the merger of Ames with the uh, Fraser Institute, on which you are now a board member. For disclosure purposes, I was a member of the board of directors at the time of the merger. We recently had their CEO, Niles uh, Benhaus, as a guest on our podcast, who discussed the advantages of the merger with uh, uh, Ames in our region. Can you tell our listeners why you think uh, well, I th- think tanks like the Fraser Institute are important to regions like Atlantic Canada and society in general. Sure. So the first thing about Ames and Fraser is it takes no government money, so it owes nothing to uh, to governments and can say what it wants without fear of uh, self-destructing, if you like, because its funding gets cut off. That's super important. Number two, of course, is that uh, if you're going to be a public policy think tank and uh, have the financial resources to have really smart people write policy papers on on issues of importance to the community, then you've got to be able to broadcast, if you like, the opinions or the ideas or the options that come out of, of that research. And it's very difficult to do that with a small institute with the kind of budget that we had at, at Ames. Uh, which was you know, somewhere between a million and a million and a half dollars. Obviously, uh, hooking up with a much larger organization means we get things like a, uh, a web-based platform that is much more professionally created. The economics of having one platform, if you like, are much better than having to have several platforms. Uh, we um, don't compete with them for funding when we go uh, up in front of national companies who are driven crazy by the fact that there's a public policy institute in Atlantic Canada, another one in Quebec, another one in Ontario, and and people are sort of say, well, I've got more business in Ontario than I did than I do in Quebec, so I'm going to give more money to the one. And, and let's just have a national public policy uh, institution or two or three of them, uh, which is what we're moving to in this country. Uh, and then it's much easier, it seems to me, to make arguments for financial support because not only are you uh, um, are, are you using the money in a much more efficient way, um, but you're much more effective at raising it? John, despite or maybe because of the pandemic, there are signs the Atlantic Canada uh, economy and the population is emerging a more desirable place to work and live. We've got a growing population. We've had uh, record inward migration, particularly to Nova Scotia and New Brunswick in the last year. Um you are currently the chair uh, of the board of directors of the Canada's Ocean Supercluster. The ocean economy is worth $36 billion a year and employs some 350,000 workers. Can you talk about the work of the supercluster and how it is impacting the economy in this region? And secondly, what are the biggest opportunities, in your opinion, from the blue economy? And before you answer that question, I do want to say that I thought Ocean Nutrition was one of the most fantastic companies because it, it, it captured that emerging trend toward a, a fish oil and omega oils, uh, and it turned into, I think it sold for a billion dollars or something. So how come we're not seeing more of that? How, how come we're not able to leverage this core asset, which is the ocean, to create more value-added companies like Ocean Nutrition? We're doing really good at selling lobsters and fish, and we, we're doing some aquacultures we talked about earlier, but I'm not seeing... Uh, a lot of these, and, and there's a lot of startups now in the supercluster, if, if you want to tell us about that. But at the end of the day, do you think we're going to see more ocean nutrition, more unicorns, more billion-dollar ocean-based companies emerging from the supercluster? Uh, yes, absolutely. I promise you we will. And that's what the cluster is all about. At a more granular level, how will it achieve that? It will by, uh, first of all, the cluster has invested a considerable amount of money in the what I'll call the ecosystem. Uh, these are the incubators uh, that support uh, very young uh, businesses at their early startup years, giving them access to to place to work, mentorship, uh, directing them uh, to organizations and financiers who, who from whom they can attract capital and uh, the. Uh, the ecosystem or that the incubation system in Atlantic Canada, particularly in the ocean economy, is on fire. There are more startup companies uh, generally in both the tech space and particularly in the ocean economy than there ever have been before. We are attracting a huge number of international startups to come here. We get uh, at the creative destruction labs 
facility at Dalhousie, which has got support from from uh, from the Ocean Supercluster. We are seeing more international interest in coming to Atlantic Canada uh, than we are getting from within Atlantic Canada, and that's that's just amazing. That's a fantastic result. Um, we're working hard to break down communication barriers. There's a tremendous amount of ocean research that's conducted here in Atlantic Canada by everybody from the Bedford Institute through to the National Research Council's uh, Marine Lab, through to the Navy, through to what goes on at Dalhousie, what goes on in, at Memorial University. But nobody talks to anybody else. No, nobody talks. The private sector has no idea what's going on inside, behind those walls. Uh, inside those walls really has no idea how relevant what it is they, they may be doing to commercial activity. So there's no communication. Those walls are being broken down uh, now, and there is much more awareness, I think. Um, and uh, and certainly when we look at a, an, an, app, an application uh, for support at the Ocean Supercluster, we require collaboration. One company cannot come along and say, well, I'm going to invest $5 in this research project. You put in $5. We say, no, thank you. Come back with a proposal that engages other uh, companies who might have something relevant to contribute here or the university community or the broader research community. Uh, and we want to see how you're going to commercialize this technology, not just in your sector, but perhaps in the marine economy or outside it. Uh, but we're forcing people to think about this in the context of a business plan. Not This is not just a research project, but what is the commercialization of this research? How, does, how is it going to add value to the economy, if you like? And the good news is that, that if we look at, at uh, other examples around the world, and Norway is the one that springs to mind, uh, their ocean is no different than our ocean. We've got all the same natural resources. They get 10 times more value. Actually, it's something like 15 times more value out of our, their ocean than we do out of ours. Now, what's wrong? What's wrong with, with here is that we haven't figured out the lessons that Norway has figured out. But these are all very doable kinds of exercises. And the cluster is just, the ocean cluster is just one of those uh, uh elements, if you like, that's going to contribute to the growth of the ocean economy. So yes, David, you will see a lot more success stories emerging from the ocean economy in Atlantic Canada in the next few years. That's exciting. Do you think the federal government is going to uh, continue the support of this uh, ocean supercluster? I understand the funding is coming up. Uh, or yeah, we're in those arguments now, and I'm I'm very confident that we will, and I'm very confident that we've invested the money wisely. We've created huge value for the country. We've got tremendous momentum, and I think we're getting a sympathetic hearing in Ottawa. Yes. Uh, I just wanted to add, uh, we had M Melanie Nadeau, the CEO of Cove, on uh, one of our po podcasts, and she mentioned the collaboration between the supercluster and uh what they're doing. They're an incubator, one of the incubators that I think that you support. Uh, do you have any, any comment on what Cove is doing and how, what? Yeah, it's tremendous. The places the Cove is, is full uh, and um, it's great to see. And again, what's unique about Cove is it's not just an incubator, but it's an incubator that, that, that has a collaborative impact, if you like. So one, one company working next door to another company, uh, gets to have conversations over coffee and over the wall kind of thing. And, uh, and people learn that, look, if I'm working on a solution for an offshore oil platform, that solution may have application in the aquaculture industry, or it may have application in, in some other component, if you like, of the ocean economy. Uh, and it's not competitive, it's complementary. What do you know that I don't know? Um, uh, and what do I know that you don't know that if we both knew, maybe we would be both better off kind of thing. You have a well-deserved reputation as a philanthropist, uh, most of it done quietly. <laughs> and in some cases, uh, such as the Nature Conservancy of Canada, you've actually taken an active role in promoting these causes. And, you know, this is a, maybe an unusual question to ask, but like, you know, what, what drives your philanthropic activities and what advice would you have uh, for other entrepreneurial entrepreneurs wishing to make an impact through their uh, philanthropic activities? 
Yeah, I, I remember being blown away by the fact that Don Selby, who was sort of a very iconic figure um, throughout his life to a lot of folks, uh, me especially, came to see me, I think it was in about 1990 or something. And, you know, I hadn't really engaged in any kind of community activities. I was too busy. I was hard at work and really wasn't paying attention to, you know, sort of a broader social responsibility. And he asked me if I would uh, head up the campaign to build the new Halifax infirmary. And I was just a sort of, what, why are you asking me? I don't know anything about that. I'm too busy. And we had a number of conversations and essentially he taught me about uh, how important it was that, uh, look, you owe the community. Uh, the community has supported you. It's given you uh, the platform, if you like, upon which you built a successful business. And you, if you owe the community, you got to give back and you, you get back more than you give. If you give it time uh, and you give it money, you get back the pleasure and the satisfaction of actually making a difference. And it's a really important thing to do. It's a very rewarding experience. Everybody should do it. Final question. We've been asking all of our, um, um, all of our interviews ease here. Would you say you are more or less optimistic about the future of Atlantic Canada today than you might have been a decade ago? If I'm optimistic about one thing, it's the breadth and depth of new entrepreneurship and uh, and startups. That's great. Young people wanting to go to work for themselves, I think, is a tremendous indicator uh, for the future of the economy. On the other side, I worry about the complacency of Atlantic Canadians the fact that uh, everybody sort of thinks that uh, life is good here and it's always going to be that way. And the only way it's going to be that way is if we work really hard at it. I think Don and I both agree with that. John, it's been a great pleasure having you on as a guest on the Insights Podcast. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure. You've been listening to the latest episode of the Huddle Insights Podcast. Mark Legere helped produce this episode. You can follow the show and listen to past episodes on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening, please recommend the show to a friend. Don and David will be back again next week.